I recall, we had two dead suspects in the car, driver and passenger, obviously in the front seat. Uh, driver was hit 25 times, passenger was hit 26 times. And we also had officers, as I recall, shooting from an elevated platform, if you remember, because we had detectives coming down a hill and firing down on the view. Yes, uh, nothing like making a reconstruction more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of picture, for, for our listeners and our team members, kind of picture a suspect vehicle literally surrounded by, by officers from varying distance, not only on the ground, but above on, on a hillside, coming and shooting as they're moving forward and some shooting from ground positions that were still elevated positions. So, you know, Lance, you had one heck of a challenge to try to piece this all together. City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Hey, well, welcome to another interesting episode of A Thread of Evidence. And today, uh, I want to introduce you to a nationally recognized firearms expert and ballistic scientist, Lance Martinis on our forensic death investigations team. I just thought that our uh, forensic team members would really enjoy listening uh, to a real forensic expert and, you know, how you fit into the scheme of uh, criminal and forensic investigations on our uh, death investigations team. So listen, right out of the door, uh, I want to take our team uh, back a couple of years and just kind of uh, picture a couple of drug dealers in an old beater car. And they, uh, they're doing a hand-to-hand transaction. They get spotted by an undercover officer who drives up to them to stop them so that he can investigate. Uh, they burn the UC and uh, they take off in the beater car. And they're driving, this is uh, late, late at night, and they're driving through downtown uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And unfortunate for them, they drive by the Hall of Justice where the police department is. And as they're driving by, probably got bad gas in the car, the car starts to uh, backfire. But unfortunately, it's backfiring while police officers are getting out of briefing and getting into their patrol car. So all of a sudden, just picture police officers and civilians, uh, you know, hitting the ground, thinking that they got shot at, the suspects speeding by the Hall of Justice, and police officers getting in their cars and beginning to take chase of the suspects. So this goes on, a lengthy vehicle pursuit going hither and yon through Cleveland, up on the freeways, down on side streets, back up on the freeways. And as they're doing this, the officers and supervisors in the pursuit are reporting that one of the suspects has got a two-handed grip out the back window of the car and is shooting at them. And even at one point, 
as they're trying to do a pit maneuver, which is a police intervention tactic, uh, one of the unmarked detective units actually gets rammed by the suspect, and officers are ducking in their patrol cars reporting, shots fired, shots fired. And the pursuit goes on about seven and a half miles, leaves the freeway back on side streets, and on the side streets, uh, it proceeds to go into a very large area of a middle school. So middle of the night, there's no kids there, thank God. And the police are trying to set up strategically to set up a roadblock. The suspect vehicle blows past the first couple of uh, patrol vehicles, goes to ram a police car. One of the officers, uh, two of the officers that bailed out, but one of the officers shoots at the suspect vehicle. His partner doesn't see this, and he starts yelling, shots fired. The vehicle proceeds down the roadway right through the middle of the middle school where there are two more patrol cars uh, set out in sort of a blocking maneuver. The suspect driver crashes right in to the uh, first patrol car, sideswipes it, and then bounces off that car and is heading for another car, patrol car, just about 40 feet away. And this patrol car has Officer Michael Brillo and his female partner, Officer Young. The officers see the vehicle coming towards them. They know shots have been fired, as reported by their officers, and they start firing through the windshield of their own vehicle at the suspect vehicle. And uh, it ends up stopping the suspect vehicle. Both Brillo and Young bail out of the car. Brillo does a magazine exchange, continues to fire on the vehicle because there's bullets whizzing left and right, Young gets out, goes over by the front, uh, uh, right front fender of, of the patrol car. She's firing her second magazine on this. Other officers are firing. The vehicle is surrounded. Uh, bullets whizzing all over the place. One of the officers gets tagged in his trauma plate of his body armor and goes down. Officers are looking through the vehicle and seeing on the other side of the vehicle that other officers opposing the vehicle are going down. You've got a firefight. Imagine this for a second. 60 patrol cars involved, 13 shooters out of 60 officers, 138 rounds fired in 17 and a half seconds. And we've got two dead suspects and no gun in the car. The death investigation team gets called in. We bring team member Lance Martini to the scene. And Lance, how about that for an opening? Uh, it doesn't get any better than that, Doc. <laughs> Why don't you take us through the crime scene, my man? Okay, a uh, couple of interesting comments that are important to the reconstruction of this event is this all occurs at night. So you picture a low light shooting situation. There are some street light uh, illumination in the parking lot area, but they're not overly bright. But you've got the flashing strobes from all the various police cars. And that does definitely have an effect on officer visibility and perception. Also, and uh, I'd like to correct just a little bit, uh, Doc, of what you said, the, when the suspect vehicle eventually came to rest, 
it actually crashed into uh, two police units that were uh, V-shaped in their orientation. Correct. The, um, the, the 538 car and the 536 car. Correct. That is that is correct. Yes. Now to backtrack a little bit, you have all, all these officers in the process of surrounding the vehicle. You have officers that hear uh, that are still coming into the parking lot that hear shots being fired. And ultimately, this was shown to be uh, fired by a the first officer there, a uh, single officer who fired, I can't remember if it's three or four shots, but his shots proved to be very critical in the reconstruction. Uh, subsequently, the vehicle sped off, rammed into the uh, two uh, police units, at which time Officer uh, Brillo, occupying one of them, exits the vehicle after uh, firing shots through his windshield, reloads, continues to fire, and ultimately ends up, uh, while all these shots are going on, uh, getting on top of the, the 538 car. The 538 car, the uh, police unit, uh, getting onto the hood of the suspect vehicle and firing his last sequence of shots from a standing position on the suspect vehicle. So, you know, let me break in for a second, Lance, just to do the tactics of this for a second. So imagine Brillo and Young emptying magazines from their Glocks through the front windshield of their own vehicle, okay, and striking the suspect vehicle. Brillo extracts from the car, drops a mag, runs to the 538 car, and uh, reloads his second mag, gets up on the back of the trunk of the 538 car and starts firing over the light bar down into the suspect vehicle. Then somehow drops his second mag, reloads with a third mag and jumps from the 538 hood over to the hood of the suspect vehicle firing down, I believe 58 rounds, right? Total for Brillo. Uh, Yes, uh, pretty much emptied his gun. So that was three magazines plus one for the uh, original chamber shot. And Lance, talk to us about what it's like to have to piece all that together because you're our ballistics guy and you've got to account for every one of those bullets as best you can. Right. And that was definitely challenging. Um, to make a note, uh, a very large number of, and to complicate things, officers are using Glock uh, Model 17 pistols and Model 19 pistols, which are nine millimeter. So all of the firing officers have the same gun, effectively the same caliber. And if you remember, Glocks have polygonal rifling. So the bullet marking characteristics are not all that good. The state crime lab went to great effort to uh, attempt to identify the individual bullets so they could uh, ascertain which officer fired what. They were unable to do so. They actually sent the uh, bullets out to an independent laboratory, actually out of the country. They were unable to do so. And ultimately, a lot of the reconstruction work depended uh, on where the expanded cartridge cases were found, uh, 
uh, as opposed to which actual, actual bullets struck the individuals. Hey, Lance, can, just for uh, for just a couple of minutes, uh, you're talking about a, a couple of forensic terms here. And for those people that are just joining our forensic team, can you ex explain a little bit about rifling for barrels and especially for clocks? And then uh, can you also discuss the casings and what type of forensic evidence is found from bullet casings that we could tie back to an officer's gun or a suspect's gun? Oh, absolutely. No problem. Uh, and uh, as a, a short segue here, one of the major problems uh, from the DA's office, they had put together their re, uh, reconstruction uh, based on officer statements. They didn't really look at the physical evidence and analyze it per se. Um, as a result, when I looked at the physical evidence and specifically the expended cartridge cases, where they were found, uh, which had been identified to each firing officer, I knew where the officers were. Uh, and as most people are aware of, uh, you get involved in a traumatic uh, event such as a shooting, sometimes your perceptions are not 100% accurate. Uh, and relying on the physical evidence will tell you what and where oftentimes as opposed to what an officer or a, a, a civilian witness may think, and you know, and that's so, what and that's what forensic experts like like we do. Uh, we use the forensic evidence and and the applied science to reconcile the the circumstances, facts with that evidence, so that we can get closer to the probability of what more likely occurred than not. Absolutely. Um, there is no bias with the physical evidence. Where, where I will look at the physical evidence, evaluate it for what it is worth, you know, what it says, and then I'll compare the physical evidence to witness statements. So I can ascertain, does the physical evidence support this statement? Is it neutral in that I can't really say one way or another? Uh, due to the lack of quality or quantity of the physical evidence? Or is, does the physical evidence say, no, it could not have happened that way? So with that approach, uh, I started with the locations of the firing officers based off of the expanded cartridge cases. And what are you now, finding there? Uh, just for just a second. Tell us just a couple of things that you can get off those casings that you can tie in with a specific officer. Uh, absolutely. Uh, with the, the Glock series of firearms, the expended cartridge cases mark very well. They're relatively easy to identify uh, the cartridge case to the firearm of origin. And therefore, we know what officer had what gun, uh, so we know where the officer was, uh, when he was firing his particular handgun. Also, too, uh, there, in some cases, uh, we'll do an ejection pattern analysis if it's really critical in terms of knowing exactly where the ejected cartridge case uh, comes out of the gun, extracts and ejects, and then comes to rest on the ground. Uh, in this particular instance, it wasn't real critical. But what was helpful was uh, we had a series of groupings uh, 
as you mentioned earlier, there was 138 cartridge cases that were recovered. So we were able through through uh, what the uh, state crime lab had done, and they had done excellent work in that area. They had identified the cartridge cases to the gun. Um, so yeah. I was able to take that information and tie it to the officer locations. And there were some discrepancies uh, in what the DA thought was the officer's locations versus what the evidence showed. No, uh, uh, I was just going to say some of those identifica identification marks on those guns are from the primer marks or the uh, the mark on the primer of each cartridge and also the ejection marks uh, that are on uh, each casing as they are extracted uh, from the gun, right? That is correct. You have extractor marks, you have ejector marks, and in this particular instance with the Glocks, uh, they're very well known for firing pin shear. Uh, basically, due to the manufacturing process, there are some rough edges which are left on the breech face, and during the unlocking stage of the firearm, the cycle of operation, uh, the hard metal of the slide, the breech face area, uh, creates striations on the soft primer material. And those, uh, those markings, those striations, make it very easy to identify it to the gun. Um, as opposed to the rifling, I had mentioned earlier that Glocks have polygonal rifling. Uh, some people call it polygonal. Uh, this is a rifling technique. Uh, which is different from cut rifling, which has very distinct lands and grooves. The lands and grooves are the spiral effect, somewhat like an elongated barbershop pole, uh, for those of, old, uh, of us old enough to remember those. Uh, it has a spiral effect. Uh, this spiral effect, as the bullet travels down the barrel, imparts a spin uh, very similar to the uh, spin on a football. This rotational spin around the central axis of the bullet stabilizes it and gives the bullet its accuracy. Now, let me ask you one thing, uh, Lance. You know, when the when these uh, cartridges are ejected out of the gun, uh, you know, sometimes they bounce off of stuff, right? I mean, they bounce off of walls. In this case, maybe cars, and they also uh, they also bounce on the ground, right? They don't always you know, fall in and uh, stay put, right? Because it's not grass. This is, you know, asphalt, at least for some of the officers that were on asphalt. Is that correct? Absolutely. And that is what uh, complicates a reconstruction sometimes. And one of the aspects that an experienced uh, examiner needs to take into account. Oftentimes when uh, I report uh, the position of a sh shooter, Unless I have additional information, such as uh, reverse tra trajectories to work with, if I'm only working with cartridge cases, I'll report a general area. It, depending on the particular characteristics of the gun, that area may be a circle or an oval of approximately five feet in diameter. Uh, but if I can tie that information into a, a trajectory, Let's say a bullet misses a suspect, hits a, hits a wall, goes through a wall, a fence, or something that gives us a good, reliable trajectory. Uh, we can run that trajectory back, and where the 
uh, suspected shooter location is based on the cartridge cases uh, intersects with the trajectory, that helps us to more readily and more accurately define the placement of a shooter. And you had to work, uh, you know, not only, uh, you know, this ties just in, uh, you know, your, your experience as, as a firearms examiner and expert, along with your applied science of being a ballistics expert and using the science of physics and linear physics, uh, and also, you know, working with our forensic pathologist at the time to, to, to determine, uh, you know, what more likely than not, who shot who at, at what particular time, right? That, that is correct, Doc. Uh, basically, once I had established where the individual officers were, and also, too, uh, if they had moved during their series of shots. Not all the officers fired from a single position. There were a couple of officers that fired some shots uh, from one location, moved to another, and fired. Or in uh, Officer Brillo's particular situation, you could actually see his movement from the vehicle to outside of the vehicle, and then up on top of the uh, adjacent patrol unit. Absolutely, so, and by tracking those cartridges, right? Absolutely. So knowing where the officers were relative to the suspect vehicle, we then, uh, I then, then took the information that was uh, developed and reported in the autopsy reports by uh, two different medical examiners that was uh, performed and then submitted uh, to the police department for evaluation. And, you know, I just want to, just for our team members, just to, to let them know, because I not only did the police practices side, but I did part of the medical side as a medical investigator. And as I recall, we had two dead suspects in the car, driver and passenger, obviously in the front seat. Uh, driver was hit 25 times, passenger was hit 26 times. And we also had officers, as I recall, shooting from an elevated platform, if you remember, because we had detectives coming down a hill and firing down on the vehicle. Yes, uh, nothing like making a reconstruction more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of picture, for, for our listeners and our team members, kind of picture a suspect vehicle literally surrounded by vehicles, I mean, by, by officers from varying distance, not only on the ground, but above on, on a hillside, coming and shooting as they're moving forward and some shooting from ground positions that were still elevated positions. So, you know, Lance, you had one heck of a challenge to try to piece this all together. Oh, absolutely. And it, it was definitely challenging, and it took a long time, too. Um, you have to approach uh, cases like this. In fact, uh, most of my cases, you have to approach it in the same method, which is you start with the physical evidence, and step by step, you look at what you have, evaluate it, move on, evaluate it, move on. And then you start getting a better picture, like assembling a jigsaw puzzle. With some of the sometimes, pieces missing. <laughs> sometimes this, there are pieces that are missing. And then you have to, instead of speaking with scientific certainty, then you start talking about, more than likely or most probably or with a high degree of scientific certainty, uh, it's not in the realm of absolutes any longer. 
Uh, and this all goes to the experience and training of the ind individual investigator. So getting back to the vehicle, we have uh, bullet impacts uh, in all the glass uh, on the windshield, the side windows, the rear window, the roof of the vehicle, the hood of the vehicle, uh, the uh, supporting posts, the A post and the uh, A pillar and B pillar, uh, the vehicle, uh, a lot of different uh, impacts from all different directions. Some of the reported gunshot wounds were relatively superficial as a result of fragmented bullets going through glass. And for those of you who aren't familiar with bullets going through glass, uh, particularly windshields, windshields are laminated in nature. You have two layers of glass with a plastic uh, center layer. Uh, this is uh, designed uh, so that uh, under crash conditions, you don't have a lot of fragments flying out and injuring individuals. Well, that does horrible things to a bullet in term, in, relative to a firearms examiner. Uh, looking at those bullets, they'll break out. Uh, the core will separate from the jacket. Sometimes the core will split. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it'll uh, perforate the uh, windshield entirely. Uh, but instead of expanding, it'll collapse. Uh, these officers are firing hollow point ammunition. Uh, but hitting a hard object such as a windshield, they'll collapse on themselves and become a solid projectile. You know, and let me so, just chime in for a second, because, you know, everybody watches just too much TV. And every time that you see an officer shoot at a car, especially a windshield, you see those bullets penetrating right through the windshield. In reality, even nine millimeter bullets, especially hollow points, could bounce right off of, of a windshield, depending on the trajectory and the angle of the window, right? Oh, there's all kinds of things going on, particularly with windshields, glass in general. But because of the laminated nature of windshields, yeah, you can you can have a, a high velocity bullet such as nine millimeter that if it strikes the window at a low enough angle of incidence, it can literally bounce off the glass. Now, what complicates it, some of these impacts will bounce off the glass and fracture uh, to a minor extent the underlying glass so you don't have a hole in the windshield. There are other times when you can have a bullet uh, strike the windshield, bounce off, it actually perforates, creates a hole in the windshield, but the bullet doesn't enter the windshield. And then lastly, you have a steep enough angle to where the bullet strikes the windshield, perforates, goes entirely through the windshield, into the passenger compartment. Hey, Lance, so, uh, I want to uh, just take a break. We're coming up uh, to a short break for our listeners. Uh, do a little commercial interruption. And let's just come right back on top of this because all of the things you're talking about are just absolutely fascinating. And if you are you know, interested in the field of forensics and how people like Lance Martini uh, put these crime scenes together. You don't want to miss this second segment. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world, to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. 
news blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Hey, thanks for joining us again for Segment 2 of A Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli, Forensic Criminologist, your host, and who we have in the, in the lab today is one of my favorite people, expert uh, in firearms and ballistic scientists, a member of our uh, Forensic Death Investigations team, Lance Martini. Uh, Lance, we've been talking about the crime scene. We were talking about ballistics and trajectories and velocities and uh, impacts into, into glass. Why don't you just keep going and, uh, and, and let's finish those thoughts. Okay. Picture we have two individuals, both very deceased, uh, front seat of the suspect vehicle, driver position and passenger position. Neither one are wearing seat belts, and they're seated naturally. Now, what I have to work with, besides the photographs uh, which were taken at the scene, we have the autopsy photographs, and we have the autopsy report. Now, the autopsy report delineates the path of the bullet through the body, and this becomes critical to the reconstruction. Uh, I say that because we have fragments which, after going through the windshield, strike the uh, suspects, either one of the individuals, don't penetrate very far. But then we have another uh, series of gunshot wounds with relatively intact projectiles that actually enter the body and either enter and exit or enter the body and stay within the body. That's the difference between perforation, going all the way through, and penetration, entering and not exiting. Now, these wound paths are reported uh, very accurately in the autopsy report. So you take the autopsy report, you combine that with the photographs, and luckily in this case, uh, because it was so complicated, even for the uh, medical examiners, uh, they, as a uh, demonstration aid uh, for the DA's office, they created mannequins uh, for the female passenger as well as the male driver, showing all of the critical wound paths that the bullets 
had traveled through uh, as they struck the uh, victim, excuse me, the uh, individuals, the suspects. So working with the mannequins made it much easier. Plus, you don't have any problems if you were to show this to the jury of individuals being able to recognize faces or body contours. So we have uh, a visual aid in working with the wound paths. Now you have some wound paths that have a very distinct, sharp downward angle traveling from up to down. And then you have uh, a number of gunshot wounds that are relatively horizontal in nature, enter the front of the body and stop, ter uh, terminate in the back or exit the back of the uh, individual, the uh, decedent. And also from back to front, right, Lance? Uh, yeah, there were a few back to front. Uh, so uh, as a result of the investigation, we were able working, myself working with the, uh, our uh, pathologist in the case, and that, that was critical. Although I have a, a very good general knowledge of uh, wound ballistics, uh, of anatomy, uh, I don't have the expertise of a medical examiner per se. Uh, and that's very important to get the facts right. So by evaluating the wound paths of each and every gunshot wound, it was relatively easy to ascertain which would have been immediately fatal, immediately incapacitating in terms of uh, each gunshot, which would have been uh, non-fatal, but ultimately lethal, so uh, instead of a, a rapid incapacitation or immediate, it would have been a delayed incapacitation or fatality associated with the gunshot wounds, or ultimately also you had non-fatal gunshot wounds. Uh, ultimately, this became a very critical aspect of the case. You've laid down just a fantastic foundation to this. Remember that our forensic death investigations team was called in to independently look at this case, analyze it, investigate it, because it had already been previously investigated uh, by a department and also uh, by the district attorney's office. And we were there for a criminal investigation because Officer Brelo had been indicted by the district attorney and was being, in fact, prosecuted for murder, for homicide on those two people. So if you're paying attention to what Lance is talking about, the critical issues were who shot these people, where were they standing, and at what point during the firefight did they fire both mortal and immediately fatal rounds? because only one of the 13 shooting officers, that was Michael Brelo, were being prosecuted for murder. And I, I'm going to continue to work with the wound paths, and then I'm going to throw in something which becomes very important. And that reflects on my earlier comment as to ultimately what were the fatal shots how the, the two individuals died and at what time they died. So we have a number of fatal shots 
and rapidly fatal or rapidly incapacitating shots. Slight difference between terminology there and what they mean, uh, but for this particular uh, uh, commentary, uh, you can take them as being one and the same. So I was able to show that because of the entrance wound and direction of the wound path, there were shots that had a very distinct and sharp downward angle that entered from the driver's side of the vehicle uh, and struck the driver in the neck area, passed down, and I, I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, one of the shots uh, passed through the heart, um, or at least the pericardial sac, and created a massive bleeding, as well as a couple of other shots. Those shots, um, in hindsight now, uh, as part of the reconstruction, I was able to show, uh, again, in, war in conjunction with the uh, our medical examiner, that because of the rapid incapacitation that occurred to the driver, the driver appeared to be moving forward and ramming into the two V-shaped patrol units. Probably by that point, uh, if he hadn't uh, lost consciousness, he was just about to. But the, that one, sh at least that one shot that went down through the heart uh, would have been a fatal shot and rapidly fatal. That became important later. Uh, and I had done that work, uh, that type of work, associating with uh, officer positions where they could have been what shots based on the wound pass through the body, which could have come from what officer or group of officers. We really never could assign a specific shot uh, other than the first uh, couple of shots to the first firing officer. But other than him, the rest of the shots were uh, a possible group of officers. Uh, again, since we couldn't identify specific bullets to a specific officer's gun. So knowing this now, uh, we have a fatal shot, or at least one fatal shot, fired by the first officer. And this was as the vehicle, suspect vehicle, was moving past, attempting to run over the officer, and the officer was firing down through the open driver's window. Uh, suspect vehicle crashes into the V-shaped patrol units, uh, and then we have a large number of shots being fired. Uh, something to consider, which uh, certainly affects an officer's perceptions, is as a high-velocity bullet, or even a low-velocity, relatively low-velocity bullet, goes through a windshield, the windshield actually flexes. Uh, and you have glass, crushed glass, that sprays backwards towards the path of the bullet, or effectively towards the shooter's uh, position. So you have glass that uh, ejects from the windshield backwards from the path of the bullet. Then you also have glass on the inside of the passenger compartment, which ejects along. Um, actually, there's a slight difference in angularity, but in general, ejects along the path of the bullet. Uh, so you've got a lot of crushed glass 
which is being ejected from the windshield, both on the exterior surface and the interior. Well, you picture this at night with strobe lights going. So every time a strobe light flashes, you see all this glass, this crushed glass, fragments of glass coming off the windshield. Now, to most officers, when you see glass coming off a windshield, it looks like there's a suspect inside the vehicle shooting out of the vehicle in the direction of the firing officers, the other officers. So all these officers who are perceiving uh, with each stroke flash, all this glass coming off of the windshield, they think they're being shot at. And remember how this shooting started with the suspect vehicle after it uh, collided with the 538 car, it's coming right towards Officer Brillo and Officer Young. So the only thing that they could think of, because they both reported that the passenger had a two-handed pistol grip pointing right through the windshield, so they elected to engage with gunfire. So they are firing through their own patrol unit front windshield. Imagine now you're an officer on the other side and looking over the patrol, I mean, uh, looking over the suspect vehicle towards Brillo and Young's patrol car and you're seeing their window being obliterated. And in your mind, because shots have been fired, as called by police officers, you believe that the suspects are firing directly on the Brelo vehicle, not believing that Brelo and Young are actually firing through their own car. So think about that collective knowledge when you're deciding to, you know, shoot or don't shoot. What do you think is going on? Okay. Now, so you have 13 firing officers, 138 shots fired in total in a period of 17 seconds. The question really came down to, and this was a basis for the criminal charge against Officer Brelo, is his last magazine full, the last 15 shots, had been recorded on one of the patrol unit's uh, dash cams. So we have a sound recording of the last series of shots. And that was considered uh, as excessive force by the district attorney's office. Uh, Officer Brillo getting up on the hood, shooting down into the suspect vehicle. Uh, and uh, in uh, retrospect, as a result of the investigation, some of those shots he fired would have been fatal. Uh, we were able to show that the actual fatal shots uh, the initial fatal shots came much sooner than Officer Brelo's shots. The suspects were either dead, and that was more than likely, or very soon to be dead by the time Officer Brelo got up on top of the suspect vehicle's hood. Now, the big question was, there was the sound recording and you can hear a series of shots. Most of those, uh, and there's uh, no point of contention there, do originate from Officer Brelo's firearm. However, there, if I remember correctly, there were three additional shots which were of contention. Uh, if I remember correctly, ultimately the uh, audio analysis 
investigators, the forensic investigators, made a determination that more than likely they were additional firearms being fired. And you know, I uh, like at this point, I got to give credit to our forensic video audiologist, Greg Stutchman, who works for Martinelli and Associates on the uh, on the forensic death investigations team, because I have to tell you, and you remember this, Lance, the other side, the prosecutors had hired three different uh, audiologists, and they couldn't pull the rabbit out of the hat. But Greg Stutchman and our labs up in Napa, California, they did an amazing, you know, Greg did an amazing job uh, to to um, isolate those last three shots, which were absolutely critical. Okay, taking that information, we have these three shots. Uh, the district attorney's office, uh, their experts couldn't decide with any type of certainty whether they were echoes from Officer Brelo's gun or if they were different firearms being fired. Um, uh, Greg Stutchman um, was able to do his magic, his analysis of the recording, and able to ascertain that these were separate shots, which introduced another component uh, in terms of the legal aspects of the case. We have Officer Brelo up on the hood of the vehicle, suspect vehicle, firing his uh, uh, firearm into the passenger compartment, we have additional officers simultaneously for at least three shots firing and intermixing with Officer Brelow's shots. So the, Officer Brelow is up on the hood, he's firing down, and other officers at that point in time still perceive a threat and are firing to stop that threat. And so you have this intermixing of shots, Officer Brelow's and other officers. And Go know, ahead, Doc. And you know what? And that became part of the legal side that I was dealing with as the police practices expert, because in a criminal case, it is all about what's determined to be objectively reasonable behavior. And so the argument that I think our team was able to make, or at least to support the argument of our legal defense team, the attorneys, was that how can you, how can you prosecute Officer Brelo when, as Lance indicated, through the use of our medical experts, our forensic pathologists, uh, that number one, these people were already dead, can't kill a dead person, and number two, other officers continued to perceive a threat to the point where they continued to use deadly force after Officer Brelo had stopped shooting. And Lance, wouldn't you agree with me that this was really a critical point uh, for our defense. Oh, absolutely. The the combination of uh, time of death for the vehicle occupants, as well as the perceived threat by other officers, those two aspects we were able to show really without any question that, as you mentioned, the two suspects were already deceased. And 
there was a perceived threat by the other officers. And legally, that became the tipping point for the judge's decision. And, you know, we'll talk about that judge's decision when we come right back for our next break and going into our third uh, session. You're listening to A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American freestyle bullfighting. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the meanest half-ton fighting bulls on earth? This is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena. This is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field. Go to shortygoramafb.com or find them on Facebook. It's bullfighting time. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hey, thanks for joining us again on A Thread of Evidence. I'm your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, and we have been speaking with firearms expert and ballistic scientist Lance Martini of our Forensic Death Investigations team. Lance, you've done a wonderful job just describing the crime scene and the evidence, uh, you know, which is just fascinating. I'd like to, uh, you know, bring it home on on the Brelo case by letting our audience know and our team members that as a result of the the work of the Forensic uh, Death Investigations team and the wonderful legal defense team, Officer Brelo was acquitted of all charges. And uh, I just felt that that was a a very brave decision uh, in that ruling. And I'm glad that uh, Officer Brelo was able to get that portion of his life back. But you know what I think is equally important in our discussion today is just listening to you talk and those people uh, that have an interest in perhaps following in your career path as a firearms expert and ballistic scientist, they're probably very curious to know about how you got involved in this, what created your interest, and maybe a little bit about your education and training. Can, can you tell us about that? Oh, boy. Uh, we could be here a long time. God, I, we're going to bring you back. That. We're going to absolutely bring you back. <laughs> I, I'd be all for that, Doc. Uh, I've been doing this now for 38 years. So, And that's just the forensic aspect of firearms. Uh, prior to that, I had the opportunity to literally grow up in the firearms industry uh, and serve my apprenticeship as a machinist under my father, who was a tool and die maker. Uh, he was uh, the head armor and shooting member of the uh, U.S. Navy, uh, all-Navy team. He retired, opened up a gun shop, and that's where I grew up. Uh, there's a lot more to the story uh, in terms of that aspect, but something I'd like to mention that as a forensic scientist, re- regardless if you get into firearms, um, trace evidence, whatever area you go into, Um, I can only emphasize uh, 
that your perception of how you do your work and how you consider things, it's very, very, very important to recognize what you do not know. We, uh, people that do this work, we are physical scientists. We have no dog in the fight. We report the facts as best we can. You take the information, you analyze it, you uh, take that evaluation, pass it on to the attorneys, and you build on that information as you acquire more physical evidence. Uh, if you don't know something, find out. Go ask somebody who does. Do the research. And if you can't find an answer, uh, and sometimes you run into those situations, admit that you don't know. So it, you know, instead of having a, an absolute yes or an absolute no, you know, your response and conclusion may be, it's possible. So I, I don't know for a fact, yes or no, an inconclusive. So uh, that's very, very important uh, in terms of background and experience. Hands-on training is great. Uh, take some of your evidence technology classes at a local college. Uh, that is certainly helpful. Most of your government laboratories, the local, state, or federal, they want an individual with a hard science degree, chemistry, uh, physics, biology, depending on what area you're going to get into. And they will teach you to be a forensic scientist. Um, Hands-on training is very important. Uh, evidence technology classes are certainly helpful. Uh, but your government laboratories, state, local, federal, they're looking for a hard science degree. Physics, chemistry, biology, microbiology, something in that realm. They will teach you how to be a forensic scientist. They'll take your formal education and show you how to apply it in the world of the crime laboratory. And, and I'll, I gotta tell you, uh, just, just to make a, a couple of remarks, uh, Lance, you're, you're far from a nerdy guy, but I'll tell you what, I think sometimes people in the audience, you know, they're saying, hey, you know, I'm kind of a nerdy guy or whatever. Let me tell you what, this is a great career path uh, for people that enjoy the applied sciences. And I'll tell you what, our work, at least the way I look at it, uh, is far more exciting than CSI Las Vegas or Miami Beach, wouldn't you say? Well, we, we don't have the, the, the black cars and, and fancy suits. <laughs> Monochrome suits. <laughs> But, uh, but uh, it's, we, it's we phenomenal it. work. I really enjoy the challenge. Uh, it's always a little different. It's never the same. And you're always learning. Uh, you'll never stop learning. There's just so much out there. You know, no, no two shootings are the same. Uh, you know, Lance, we're just so pleased uh, to have you on the forensic death investigations team and uh, part of Martinelli and Associates. And Lance has got his own private practice as well. It uh, does very well with. Uh, and uh, it, 
the work that you do just brings so much more to the table in our search for the truth and providing forensic solutions instead of speculation. I want to thank you, Lance, uh, for being with us today. Uh, my God, we were going to talk about three or four other cases, never even got there. It was all Brillo. Uh, but that just shows uh, the audience and the team just how fascinating these cases are and how complicated they can be. Hey, would you do us a favor, Lance, and come back in the future? Oh, absolutely, Doc. It'd be my pleasure. Well, great. Listen, thank you so much, audience and my forensic team members. Thank you for being a part of this program. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, and this is A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. Y'all be safe out there, and we'll see you soon.